Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Hello, my friends. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Good to see all of you. Maybe it's in my head, but it seemed that fewer of you have your cameras on than usual. Um, I feel like you're hiding out there, and we're not in Purim yet. I just love seeing your faces. Richard, Shalom. Hi, Brandon. Nancy. Charlene, Cal and Ardell, but that's not Cal. Oh, there you are, Cal. Who's in between you? Looks like uh, your daughter, granddaughter. Anyways, I wish I could speak to each of you personally, but this is going to be a pretty tight fellowship, I think. There's just so much to talk about. It's a little bit intimidating. There's Vayikra, there's Purim, there's, of course, World War III. Uh, there's just so much. Um, but before I even try to dive in, Let's just get to, uh, to the real wisdom here. Allow me to introduce one of my great Rebbies, Tehillah Gimpel. Tehillah, you're up. Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well. I want to think a little bit together about the book of Esther coming up on Purim now. Now when we read this story, there are a bunch of characters. But what I noticed for the first time this year is that all of the characters are pretty much static. They're good guys and they're bad guys. And there are who they are, like Haman starts bad and he's bad through and through. He's bad till the end and Mordecai is good and he never falters. He is just always good. But there's one character in the book that actually undergoes a change and a transformation and that's Esther herself because she's not born a heroine. She starts out one way and becomes the heroine that saves Israel. And it's really important to notice because as we come up on the holidays, we sort of want to be transformed and grow. And so the question of transformation is going to be really interesting for us. So when we meet Esther in the beginning of the story, at least in the first half, she's this sweet, docile girl. You don't even hear her voice. She doesn't say anything. It's always saying things are being done to her. She's being taken. She's being taken to the king and being dressed in perfume and marry. And, and you know, don't say you're Jewish. And she listens. And whatever Mordecai says, she just does it. She keeps quiet. He says, keep your head down. Don't mention where you're from. And, you know, she doesn't seem like the material that heroes are made of. But then in the second half of the story, she ends up leading this plan and going to the king and telling everyone to fast and then making a party and making another party and then making this whole plea for the king in front of the king and then, then asking the king to give the Jews another day to defend themselves. And she just paves the way to the salvation. How did she get from point A to point B? So now what's interesting, you can really transform it down to, like you can really identify it down to one moment, this one particular moment that she had. She, you know, she's just being her queen and minding her own identity. And then she gets a message from Mordecai that she should go to the king on the Jews' behalf. And now it's money time. It's her opportunity to be a hero. And how does she respond? She's like, oh, I can't do that. Everyone knows you can't go to the king without permission. He'll kill me. So it's kind of what we would expect, right? That's Esther, the rule follower. Esther who lays low. Esther who doesn't want to make a scene, just goes along. Now, if you were Mordecai, how would you convince her? Like if you were a parent and you had a child who's like too timid to do what they need to do, what would all the parenting books say to do? What would the psychologist say to do? I'm sure they would say, build up her self-esteem. No, Esther, rah, 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 you're strong, you're amazing, you're a powerful, empowered woman. And you know what'll happen if you say the Jews? Everyone will remember you. Kids are gonna dress up as you on Purim. Everyone's gonna know your name. You're gonna be on all the billboards. So if, you know, Mordecai would want to encourage Esther. We would expect him to say something really nice and empowering. But what is the last thing he says to her before her turnaround? He says to her, if you remain silent at this time, relief and rescue will arise from the Jews from elsewhere and you and your father's household will perish. And who knows whether for a time like this, you attained the kingdom. He basically says to her, fine, who needs you? You think we need you? Go on, stay in the king's palace. I'm not worried. 
you and your father's house, no one will remember. But the Jewish people, we're going to be saved some other way. You are not really that critical of a piece of the puzzle. When you read this, you think, really? Was that your best pep talk, Mordechai? She was nervous to begin with. You know what's going to help her? Tell her how unimportant she is. Not only are you not important, no one will even remember your father's house. That should do the trick in getting her confidence up. But lo and behold, that's actually what works. It triggers the change because the very next verse after Mordechai says that is, Esther says to him, go assemble all the Jews in Shushan on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days. And I will also fast in a like manner and I will go to the king contrary to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And then it says Mordechai did all that she commanded him, meaning all of a sudden she's in control. What is this about? What gave her all of that newfound courage? And I think these verses really encapsulate the difference between the biblical idea of confidence and the modern psychological idea of self-esteem. In the modern psychology world, you think that you empower, you're told that you empower somebody and give them strength by telling them how important you are, how amazing, how amazing they are, how special and wonderful and perfect. You should feel good about yourself. You can do anything you set your mind to. Mordechai empowers Esther in the opposite way. He says, you're not that special. You're not even that needed. There's a story here that's bigger than you and it's bigger than me. It's Hashem's plan, the Jewish story, and that's going to go on. If you connect to it, great. Maybe that'll be why you got this whole saga of getting kidnapped by the king, and if not, you're just not going to be all that important. And shockingly, it works because Esther understands that not from her own personal charisma or oratory skills will anything come about, but rather by her connecting to the strength of Hashem's larger plan and the history of Israel. And then you see from Esther's response that she totally gets it because what is she saying? She says, go assemble the Jews. She doesn't say, all right, I'm on it. She says, go assemble the Jews. And if I perish, I perish, meaning she got the message that she needs to draw strength. She knows her only strength will come from realizing that she is not the point of the story, but she can connect to the unity of Israel, to the larger destiny that's unfolding. And then you're going to be, she realizes she's going to be able to do things that she thought, you know, based on her previous behavior that she'd never be able to do. You know, when we're reading her character, we think she's not going to be able to do this, but then she is. And this is so important because how do we build ourselves and our children to face the challenges of life? You know, you can see I'm all like black and white today because I went uh, to court. And as I was driving to court today, it was a case I was I was a little bit concerned. I was a little bit nervous. It's a case of child abuse. and I felt a big responsibility to you know protect children in the particular case that I'm working on. And I'm starting to give myself a pep talk. Okay, you know, Tahila, you're on it. You can do this. But then I thought about this Torah from Esther and I realized that, no, that's not how to draw strength for the challenges of life. The best pep talk I can give myself is to just say, Hashem has a plan. I might not know the right thing to say or the right thing to do, but if I connect to the larger picture, to Hashem's will, I'll be able to draw strength from that. And I think it's just marvelous to actually look at the book because, you know, Mordechai was just as important a character as Esther when you think about it. But the book is called the Book of Esther, maybe to draw our attention to the fact that particularly by Esther being willing to make herself small and say, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to do what I can for bringing Hashem's will into the world, for bringing the greater story of the Jewish people into its next, into its next stage from that. She actually got her glory and, you know, the memory of her name is essentially, you know, carried on forever in the, in the Torah, in the Bible, um, by her, by her uh, discovery. And so with that, I hope that all of us can draw strength from this story to face life's challenges in the Esther kind of self-esteem that she teaches us. So with that, I wish everyone a joyous and um, transformative holiday of Purim. Bye, everyone. Yeah, that was beautiful.
Beautiful. You know, uh, I, we, we just read it. I just never reflected on the, the powerful concept that Mordechai conveyed. You know, that salvation would come from another place. How really counterintuitive and unconvincing an argument that really is. Anyways, Tila, thank you so much for that. Is there anyone else that you would want representing you in court other than Tehila Gimpel? I think not. Anyways, Tila, that was fantastic. And now complimenting Tehila perfectly as always is my beloved friend Jeremy to share from his heart. Now, Jeremy, keep it tight because I have stuff I need to say. Okay, I, well, I just, I wanted to build off of what Dehila said because we were talking about it all of Shabbat because I had never really noticed that. Like, I just didn't look at the characters in that way. How Achashverosh is sort of this like king that stays kind of like a weird king and Haman is evil and Mordechai is good. And then there's Esther who literally goes through this transformation and becomes so courageous and so empowered and becomes the leader. And um, I, we've just been talking about it all of Shabbat. And I just wanted to share some of my thoughts and kind of like share the conversation uh, with our fellowship. And so, you know, the year is ending now in a lot of ways. You know, there's so many dimensions to the biblical year. Like Rosh Hashanah is a new year, but also Nisan is also, I mean, it actually says it in the Torah. It's the beginning of the new year. It's the springtime. It's Pesach. And so this now biblical end of this year um, ends with Purim. And then the new year in Nisan starts with Passover. And so it starts with a redemption, and then the year ends with a last redemption. But those two redemptions are absolutely opposite. It's almost like the transformation that Esther went through, where the first redemption, the Jews were very passive. They didn't really have to do much. They just kind of had to stay in their homes, put some blood on their doorposts, and God performed miracles and brought them out. Uh, but the last time... Esther really needed to step up. The Jews needed to unite. They fasted for three days, and God was nowhere to be seen. It's the only book in the Bible where God's name isn't mentioned even once. And so it's sort of these two redemptions that are unfolding, and they're two scenarios, and they're real two blueprints, this Passover redemption and this Purim redemption. And I think that as we read the Torah portions now, it's really teaching us how to understand this Purim redemption because the book of Esther was the last book attached to the Hebrew Bible, and it was the last message given to us until the coming of Mashiach, meaning it's telling us until the final redemption, Hashem is not going to be seen. You're not going to see his name in the book, and things are going to unfold in the world, and it's going to look like Haman and Esther. And Well, what's the Parsha really? We read this Parsha, it's called Vaikra, and there's something that's so peculiar because there's this ancient tradition. No one knows how ancient it is, but it's well over 2,000 years old, and it's a written tradition in the actual Torah scroll itself. So anyone that's just reading an art scroll or reading a King James edition, you could never find it. So what I want to do is I just want to bring it up on the screen here and show you how it's written in the Torah, and that's how it's written. That Hebrew word right there says vaikra, which means, and he called, and that's the beginning of the Torah portion. But in every Torah scroll around the world, whether it be in Morocco or in Poland or in the Ukraine or in Israel, all of them, wherever they were ever written, are written like this. And there's this small aleph that's this ancient old tradition. What does that mean? And I think it really connects so deeply to the story of Purim. And that's not a coincidence that we're reading this Parsha as we go into this holiday. Now, if you take away the Aleph, there's a word there. And it's with the first three letters spell a word, Vayikar, 
which literally means, and it just so happened. That's probably a good way to translate that word. Just sort of like, like not a coincidence because there's no word for coincidence in Hebrew, but that's just about as close as you can get. And it just so happened that that happened. And then if you have an Aleph there and it's, and he called, and that's really, really profound that things that are unfolding, they could just seem like they're just kind of unfolding. They're just sort of happening. It just happens to be that Russia is invading Ukraine and this new alliance and this, all of these things are just kind of happening. But if you add the Aleph, and an Aleph is a letter that doesn't make any sound. You don't hear it. You can only read it. It's like a silent letter. And it's also the first letter of the alphabet that represents one. And Aleph always represents God. So here we have this unfolding things that are just happening with a silent Aleph that represents the one God of Israel. And what it's saying is that when you add that silent Aleph, when you add the silent one that connects the all, then it's not just, and it just so happened, but rather that just so happening, reality that's unfolding before us is actually calling to us. It's communicating to us. That's what Purim is really all about. In fact, that was the first question that was asked to Adam after he eats from the tree. God says, Ayeka, where are you? It's like life is calling us. Hey, where are you in life right now? Where are you in your marriage? Where are you with your family? Where are you in your life? Where are you now? And man, where could you be? Like that's that's the path of the believer. And life is calling us to grow and transform, just like Esther. It's growing and transforming and becoming who we were destined to be. And then what happens? Haman comes and the sages of Israel say that Haman accomplished more than all of the prophets of Israel ever accomplished. The prophets of Israel, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, and we're all, repent, 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 repent. Pfft, all of them failed. Haman, with one ring, all of the Jews gathered together. All of the Jews fasted. In one swoop, this evil man accomplished more than all of the prophets of Israel. And what happened there was a crisis. A crisis hit, and it's almost as if life is calling us to grow, and then a crisis hits, and it demands you're going to grow. And that's the way life is going to unfold. And we, we spoke last week about mashber, the word crisis, literally in biblical Hebrew means labor, that the word crisis and labor means that when a crisis hits and Haman puts out a decree and all of the Jews are like, we're all going to be annihilated in one day. That's going to happen. That's the king's law. It was like a crisis of faith. And out of that, something was birthed. All of the people of Israel gathered together and all of the people of Israel repented. All of the people of Israel have fasted. And then that inspired the nations. One of the last verses in the Bible, it says that Ameha Aratzot, the nations of the land, became to, they didn't convert to Judaism, but they started, it says, Mit Yahadim, they started to become more Judean. They started to become more biblical. They started to live a more Torah-oriented life. Like that Jewish power, when they all repented finally, actually inspired the nations of the world to change because reality was calling to them. And how do we know that reality was calling to them? Well, there's this amazing prophecy in the book of Jeremiah in the 29th chapter. He actually tells it twice. This prophecy is mentioned five times in the Bible. We'll just read one of the most famous ones in Jeremiah chapter 29, and this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah the prophet promises. 70 years are going to pass. There's no way around it. You're going to have to stay in exile for 70 years. But as soon as 70 years are done, 
the gates are going to open. You're going to be able to come back to the land of Israel. 70 years passed. The gates were open. The people of Israel could have come back. And reality was Vaikra, and it was calling to them to come back. But instead, the people of Israel wanted to see Vayikar. Ah, I don't really see God calling us back. I don't see any Messiah that's riding in on any clouds of glory. Like, all right, I'm just going to stay here and wait because it just seems like things are unfolding. And they didn't hear reality calling them back to the land of Israel. And then what happened? A crisis came because Jeremiah prophesied to come back to the land of Israel and they didn't come. And then after the fishermen were sent, the hunters came and Haman put out the decree. And, you know, it's one thing to feel sort of happiness. Western society is built on this happiness of achieving this goal, of wanting to get there. But there's a different kind of joy. It's a different kind of simcha when you're doing what you were fashioned to do. I feel like I was fashioned to be a father. When I'm being a good father, it's just a constant joy. And I watch Ari, the greatest father of all times, I just watch him being a father to Dvash, and it's like he is doing what he was fashioned to do. It feels like I'm fashioned to broadcast, to teach, to preach, to communicate online, in the farm, on the road. I just want to, and when I'm doing what I'm fashioned to do, it's not like a, a goal that's achieved. It's just a constant joy that's set there. But each person has their own destiny. Each person has their own strengths. Each person has their own soul that needs to be revealed in the world. But every single person in the world has something in common. We were all fashioned to transform ourselves just like Esther. That's why it's the end of the year. That's why it's the final redemption, because ultimately the redemption is inside. There will be a global redemption, but that's going to happen when enough believers transform themselves from an internal redemption. And the calling that all of us have, where all of us will fulfill like a sustained joy is when we're all working on becoming who we were fashioned to be, working to transform and working to grow. It's not a one-time choice. It's not like, now I'm a believer and now I'm orthodox and now I circumcised my son. So now I'm in the covenant of Abraham. It's literally a day-to-day, moment-to-moment choice. Like, what can I do today to bring more light? How do I manifest more goodness? How do I bring out the best in myself? How do I bring out the best in those that are around me and my loved ones? Because Haman was really successful. (laughs) Change is going to come. We are going to grow whether we like it or not. So either we can choose to grow like Esther, or there's going to be a mashbeher, a crisis, and then crisis is going to demand the change. And I think that that's why Purim is such a joyous holiday, because we're inspired by Esther, where we choose the joy, we choose the change, we choose the transformation, because that's what we were fashioned to do. And so I want to bless everyone here with the joy of Purim, knowing that redemption is unfolding in these world events that seem to be just happening. But as they're just happening, there's a small olive there that's calling us back to the land of Israel, that's calling us to be who we were fashioned to be, and it's transforming the world. And so we should hear that calling to transform our lives and become the agents of light that we were fashioned to be. So I wish you all a beautiful, beautiful Purim. That was beautiful, Jeremy. Thank you so much for that. And uh, as you all heard, Jeremy said Dvash, and I take that as an opening for pictures and videos of Dvash. Oh my God. I really should do that more, right? She is so unbelievable. 
that's one of the tough things about the Sunday fellowship is that I, I don't really get to see her on Sunday when she comes back. So we're really missing each other and she is my best friend, but I'm not going to get lost on that. Jeremy, if you could turn off your screen because you do the thing, the face, it throws me off. Anyways, really between you and Tehillah, the insight on the Parsha and on Purim, it's so Chazak. And, and I'm happy that all of that was said because I found myself really struggling with how to fit everything in. And I realized it would be impossible. There's just too much to cover because between Parshat Vayikra, um, not only the, the Torah portion, but the, really the entire book, um, the upcoming holiday of Purim, which for those of you that know me well, or at least have been part of the fellowship since last year, you know the Purim is like very, very special with me in, in my heart. I love Purim, not just in the sense of the rituals or even the drinking, because I'm not so into the drinking for some reason. It doesn't come naturally to me but in the message itself. And uh, this is a particularly hard holiday to tackle because many people in the Western mindset, both Jews and non-Jews alike, they associate Purim as the Jewish Halloween. God forbid. It actually hurts me to even say that sentence, to say those words. Uh, it's a difficult to, for me to imagine two things that are more antithetically opposite than Halloween, which is a pagan, cultish, idolatrous, holiday. And I'm not saying everybody that celebrates it is that, but that's what it does. It definitely has its roots there. Um, and Purim, which many sages say that at least on some level is the holiest and most sacred holiday out of all of them, even more so than Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement, which our sages say is Yom Kippurim, the day that is like Purim. Anyways, so there's, uh, there's the, the Parsha, the holiday of Purim, but also the special reading of the Haftorah that we read this week. And by the way, I was mistaken in what I wrote about in the email of preparing for this fellowship. This year, the Haftorah falls out on Parshat Zahor, which I'll explain later. And therefore, it's found in the book of Shmuel and Samuel, chapters, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 34. Right, the portion in which the kingship is ripped away from Saul because he did not follow Hashem's instructions, uh, delivering, um, you know, to, to, for, for him to wipe out the entire nation of Amalek. So Samuel came and, you know, you know the story. Anyways, so, uh, so being that there is such a, a disconnect between the sheer volume of content and themes and teachings that there is to discuss and, and our limited amount of time, I had to dig really deep and out, what do I really have on my heart to say here, because there are plenty of resources available to understand the holidays and the themes and the practices, but we're here in the fellowship together to, to open our souls to each other, to dig really deep. And so the more I immersed myself, the more I saw how perfectly uh, all of these themes that we're facing right now are, are aligned together. And with Hashem's help, um, they can really give us the eyes to see what's going on in our lives and in the world right now. And so the, the more I meditated and reflected, the clearer it became came that this fellowship would ultimately be about two things, light and darkness, about the creation of the world, the purpose of the world, and our mission within it, right? It's not too ambitious, right? Anyways, I was reflecting on this, and I realized that much of what I'm going to share, this is a big disclaimer I'm going to give, but I, I just have to say it, it's from the dimension of Torah that's more mystical. And I know that uh, different people feel differently about that, but we're here to share our hearts. And I do believe that we're approaching times of revelation, right? When this thin veneer 
of how we always thought things were is going to get peeled off and removed. And I'll tell you that for me, what we're about to discuss is, isn't a deviation from the simplicity of the text at all. It's simply a deeper dimension of the text, which provides a, a deeper understanding of the backstory of the verses and the biblical concepts that we hold dear and that we live by. If you don't know what I'm talking about, hopefully you will soon, because I see some faces and some furrowed brows. Um, so that's ultimately why I was led to share this with you, because one of the principles of the fellowship is that we're really here learning together. I'm not here coming to you guys saying, I know the truth, right? And here it is. I'm saying, we're on this quest together. We're on a quest for truth together. And here's the truth as I understand it right now. And it's up to you to use your own internal guide of truth to determine whether it speaks to you, how much of it speaks to you, whether it connects your soul and lights you up in a way that godly people like you can identify, right? That you recognize. And I think what I'm going to share with you will light you up because when I encountered it, I immediately thought of all of you. That it, uh, that it really may help you understand a certain dimension of the strong spiritual stirrings that are happening within you, that I've been trying to understand also, not only within me, but within all of you, because I meet you and I'm like, these are just creatures of light. What is, what is happening here? What are you doing? And, and it's, uh, you know, it's not necessarily intellectual place to understand, but it's a spiritual thing. It's an emotional thing. So before we dive in, I just want to say that I'm, I'm grateful to Jeremy that he spent so long sharing his soul map ideas because uh, it will help with understanding this. It's, it's sort of like seeing the binary code, right, of ones and zeros behind the verses themselves. So let's start off by answering the question. And it's a small question, but an important question. Why are we here, right? What is our purpose in the world? For each individual, this may manifest itself very differently, but for the for the Jewish people and really for all of humanity, we do have a clearly stated purpose in the world. And what is that purpose? So according to the sages and the mystics, and really if you dig deep enough, ju just the simplest understanding of the Bible, our purpose in this world is to make a dwelling place for Hashem here within it. Our purpose is to make a dwelling place for God in the world. Now, what does that mean? So I've shared with you my mantra that's provided me with more strength and courage than anything else, right? That mantra that I turn to when I'm in the midst of the storm of life and I forget everything else, right? Those three words that I have clung to for dear life, three words that, that carry within them an entire world of commentaries and consequences, but they're also just the simplest three words that there are. And many of you who have been part of this fellowship, you know what I'm going to say. Say it with me. Ein od milvado. Right? There's nothing other than him. Right? The, if there's nothing other than him, his great unimaginable light and his undifferentiated oneness, then how do we live in this world that has a very, very convincing differentiation? Right? Duality and multiplicity and even terrible evil, if there's nothing other than Hashem, which we know from throughout the, the Bible and the prophets, it's not just like a one-off verse in Deuteronomy that we're clinging on to. This is a fundamental concept throughout the Bible. If there's nothing other than him, then go and try to explain this world, which seems to testify that everything is other than him. This is why other faiths, and, and maybe even some of you, right, may, may think that there's like 
no, the, the light side and the dark side and the dark side is other than God or outside of God and like Satan and God are competing forces. I can understand the, what would lead someone to, to, to hold there. So because we can talk about this for the entire fellowship, here's the structure, very oversimplified. Before creation, there was this undifferentiated oneness of God, which in the world of ultimate truth has still not changed. God is still one. His name is one, undifferentiated. But what has changed? What did creation bring into reality, into existence? Our perception of duality. In order to make that the, the multiplicity, the duality, the differences, the other than appear very real in our perception, Hashem created a series of, of filters that conceal and constrict that light right? That mask the light, that mask it, right? But we'll get into Purim soon. And so his great light goes through these filters, right? These spherot until it gets to the lowest level, the, the, the physical, crass, tangible world that we live in. Now, I wish I could talk about this, the whole fellowship. I have, I have sources I wanted to share with you, but very briefly, the way it played out was that God created these vessels right, to hold his supernal light, and the vessels couldn't contain it, and so they shattered, and those sparks of light were scattered throughout all of reality. Anyways, why is it this way? On the truest, deepest level, I don't know. I don't, these are things that the human mind can't understand, but on the, the level that we can understand, it's because there's something about the revelation of Hashem's light here in the lowest realms of darkness that brings pleasure to God, if we could even say such a thing. And, and, and like, like a father, right, Hashem is our father, what is Hashem's pleasure, right? Seeing us happy, seeing us fulfill our potential, bringing out the best within us. He loves us more than we could ever imagine. And when we're able to transform the darkness of this world into light for him, when we're able to see through the illusion of evil and otherness and duality, well, the emergence of that light from the darkness is just, it's so much more beautiful than the light was to begin with. It's the transformation of the darkness into light that happens through us that gives Hashem pleasure. Give me a thumbs up if you, at least you're sort of with me in any way. I was really conflicted, but I just had to share my heart. Okay. Krista, thank you. Shelley D. Okay. So that brings us to this Torah portion, right? Vayikra, which on a basic level may appear totally unrelated to what we're talking about or to Purim at all. But, but on a deeper level, they're really beautifully intertwined. Because what is Vayikra about? Sacrifices, right? Sacrifices that were performed in the temple. Now, it's taken tremendous willpower to not to share other thoughts that I really wanted to share with you about this portion. And I, I don't even know why I'm telling you that. It's like when I do the dishes and I have to tell Shayna about every step of it. I, I just wanted credit for the self-restraint that I'm not saying with you. But let's go back to the point. At the very beginning of the Torah portion, we see it. We see how the sacrifices themselves provide pleasure to Hashem. Tabitha, can we pull up slide number two? Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9. He shall wash its innards and its feet with water, 
and the Kohen, spelled wrong, sorry, shall cause it to go up in smoke on the altar. And elevation offering, a fire offering, is a satisfying aroma to Hashem. Reach nichoach. It just sounds better in Hebrew. Reach nichoach. That something about the sacrifice is a, a satisfying aroma to Hashem. How is it a satisfying aroma to Hashem? Is there something that we could possibly do that would give Hashem who is everything, who has everything, that we could give Hashem pleasure? And why would offering up an animal on the altar in the temple possibly give pleasure to Hashem? So to try to answer this question, let's go back to the first verses of the Torah portion of the entire book, right? He called to Moshe, and Hashem spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when a man among you brings an offering to Hashem from animals, from the cattle or from the flock, shall you bring your offering? Okay, now to understand this critical insight, we need to go to the Hebrew because it's totally, totally lost in the translation. So Rav Shner Zaman of Liadi, we've spoke about him before. He's the author of the Tanya, the founder of Chabad. He explained that the text says, Adam ki yakriv mi kem korban. The text does not say, if, if a man of you who shall bring near an offering, but it says a man who shall bring near of you an offering, meaning that the offering is brought of you. It's a piece of you, that there's a deep intrinsic connection between that animal that's being offered and your very self. Just a, a quick little story. This past Shabbat, I had a friend of mine from the nearby settlement come over. I've actually wanted to talk to you about this guy a lot. He's just such a character. He's a very zealous. He's very devout. Uh, he's actually that guy that some of you may have met that stands in the town square in downtown Jerusalem playing the guitar and jumping up and down for hours. I actually found this video of him from years ago, from before we became as close friends as we are now. I love the fact that this guy is my next door neighbor. I used to see that guy and be like, where does he go home? What does he call home? The answer is the settlement right next to us, the first Breslov settlement in, in the land of Israel. That's where he and many people like him call home. Anyways, interestingly enough, his name is Mordechai. And I could do a whole fellowship on him, but the truth is that what I have to say isn't even about him. It's about his brother. So his brother flew in from England, uh, and he, he was visiting, and they came to my house for Kiddush on Shabbat. And he told me that in a sharp contrast to his brother, Mordechai, the guy that we just saw, that he's an atheist, and he's a devout Democrat. Those are the two primary identities that he shared with me by which he clearly defined himself and I asked him if he was sure that he wasn't an agnostic you know because some people get those two things confused and it's not that they don't not believe they just don't know right so they're just like question mark and that's ag agnostic but he said no he is a devout atheist and so we spoke about that a little bit and he was a sweet guy and we have stores we started getting to philosophical discussions and somehow came up that he believes that we as human beings are really just an extension of the animal kingdom, that we're just animals who can talk. That's what he said, we're just animals. 
I then asked him if he's a Democrat because it's his perception that the Democratic Party is more compassionate to the poor and the needy and the disenfranchised and the unfortunate, uh, to which he said, yes, that is the reason. That's what he said. By the way, just I completely disagree with that being the case. I don't think that that's the issue, but that's neither here nor there. That's for another discussion. I think it's really the opposite. Anyways, I share that because, uh, you know, I, I, what I told him, if we're just really animals, then he wouldn't be a Democrat at all because there would be no Democrats because animals live by the law of the jungle, right? Survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive and Democrats, they would have no voters, right? So I shared with him that from a spiritual perspective, we are godly souls that are inhabiting a physical animal-like body with very real animalistic, physical, primal impulses, but that does not make us animals. We have a neshama. We have a godly soul, which is always seeking to rise up and connect with our source. And we have a, an animal spirit also within us, a nefesh chaya, which has its own set of very physical needs and desires. So when we bring an offering to Hashem, we are bringing an offering of ourselves, of the animal impulse within us, the animal impulse that perhaps led us into the very sin for which we're offering the sacrifice to begin with. And so what are we doing with this animal that we're offering? What are we doing with this animal impulse within us? We're not just slaughtering it, right? We're not just slaughtering it. That would be some more similar, I was thinking, to Catholicism. And again, I say this with love and non-judgment, knowing that we have Catholics here in this fellowship, each one of whom I love with my whole heart. But we have to speak our truth. And, and so I, I say, because from what I understand, understand of Catholicism, as well as other like aesthetic faiths, there's a complete reje rejection of the physical impulses and the physicality is evil, right? Priests remain single and celibate their whole lives as a prime example. And by the way, I want to make it clear that I have met Catholic priests who I think that Hashem loves with all of his heart because of the sincerity and the honesty and they love that they have within them. I'm not judging them, God forbid. I'm just talking about the theology. So that is not what Hashem is telling us here, that although the animal impulse has, uh, has the potential to lead us to the most evil of places, it is not evil. On the contrary, it has the potential to be very, very holy. It just needs to be harnessed for Hashem. We need to, to offer it up in service of Hashem. We need to control it through our godly soul and not have it control us. And when we do, we could accomplish far more than we could ever accomplish without it. I always think of the teaching of my friend uh, and Rebbe, you know, Yishai Fleischer. He said regarding the idea of Ol Malchut Shamayim, the yoke of heaven, that there are people that see the yoke of, of the Torah, the yoke of the Torah as being under the law, right? As if it was some sort of burden, God forbid. But the truth is, as Isha explained, that without a yoke, an oxen would, would run wild and wreak havoc and cause terrible destruction and even death. But if it has a yoke upon it, then its energy can be harnessed to bring forth life and sustenance and goodness. And so it's not the negation or the destruction of the animal within ourselves that we're seeking. It is elevating the sparks, transforming these base impulses into light. That is what we seek to do. That's what the sacrifices were all about. 
It, it was like inviting Hashem to our dinner table where we share a meal with him on us. We're participating together. And, and, when, we, and when we elevate this dark crassness of these impulses to serve Hashem, well, that is what brings a reach nichoach, right? A fragrant scent to Hashem. Whenever I have an impulse that I'm fighting against, I just, I, I picture that that fight, the pain within me is creating uh, this fragrant scent in, 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 for, for Hashem. Anyways, this brings us to Purim. Now, before I bring this together, I just wanted to throw out an idea. Um, at the end of this fellowship, if Mashiach doesn't come by then, I had the thought that those who wish to could stay on and we can connect, like, let's call it like a fellowship connection, right? We'll open up for people to ask questions or share about themselves, no pressure at all, but from you. So when the time, time comes, just raise your hand and Tabitha will call on you. Um, but don't think about that too much right now. Maybe I shouldn't have even said that right now. Let's just stay present here. And when the time comes, you can dig deep and decide where you're at and decide then. Okay, so Purim. Purim. That, that's what this is all about. And perhaps that's why Purim on some level is the, is the holiest. And why Yom Kippur is the day that is Kepurim, like Purim. Purim is the holiest because it is the lowest. Right? It's the only book in any of the books of Tanakh, of the entire, right, the Torah, the prophet, the writings, the entire Bible, the only book that doesn't have in it any mention of Hashem's name. That's how low and hidden God is within the holiday of Purim, and why within Purim lies greater potential for elevation and transformation than any other holiday. Are you with me up until now? Could you give me a thumbs up? I can't wait till when you can come out here and we could see each other and actually communicate, but for right now, this is where we're at. Anyways, not only are we dealing with the lowest level of hiddenness and concealment, but from that place of hiddenness, is we're coming face to face with the ultimate source of evil and darkness, right? We're facing the powers of Amalek, Amalek. Now, it's important to understand that Amalek was a very special nation that we've spoken about it throughout the years here in the fellowship. Well, we could say years. There were, there were, there were many nations that have hated the Jewish people and sought to wipe us out and sought to harm us. But Amalek is unique in that their hatred is just, it's pure. It's unadulterated by ulterior motives and personal interests. Their hatred is just pure and all consuming. Now just weeks, right, after the Jews left Egypt, and all the nations of the world were in fear of this people, of this nation, who God clearly loves beyond any other, that totally messed with the laws of nature and upended them in front of the whole world, bringing down the world's biggest superpower. Right? The nations were terrified. Amalek attacked the Jewish people despite the fact that they were not in danger themselves. The, the, the Jews were not going through their land their land was not part of the land of Canaan. It wasn't like on the chopping block. They, there was no threat to them. They attacked because of their raw hatred of God himself. Amalek cannot function. He cannot think, cannot be happy or be at peace as long as Israel exists and as long as there's even one Jew living in the world, right? Like, like when Haman 
said to Zeresh, his wife, that all his wealth and his riches and his power and his possessions are worth nothing to him as long as Mordechai is alive. That's Amalek. Like when Hitler decided to focus all of his resources, not on defeating the allies, but to wiping out the Jewish people, even though that meant the loss of the war, World War II. He didn't care. His real war was against the Jewish people. And that's why Saul's punishment was so extreme for not wiping out Amalek, right, in the Haftorah portion. He was commanded by Hashem through Shmuel to wipe out Amalek, and he didn't do it. And that's why the kingdom was ripped away from him. Because the sages of Israel teach that by keeping the king of Amalek alive that night, for whatever reason he gave as an excuse, whether it was because the people pressured him or because he was going to sacrifice what he didn't kill to Hashem, whatever excuse he gave, that one night that the Amalekite king Agag was kept alive, the sages teach this. He, he procreated that night and he had a child and Amalek lived on. Evil in the world could have been wiped out right there if only he had listened to Hashem, but he didn't. He didn't have the strength maybe or, or the character or the faith to wipe him out. And so what was the result of that weakness? Haman the Agagite, right? Haman HaAgagi, Agag, right? The descendant of Agag that we see in the Haftorah, in the chapter of Shmuel. The relation is direct and it's unquestioned because of, of Saul's weakness and his lack of faith. From, from Haman to Hitler, right? The line and the legacy of Amalek continued on. That's pretty worthy of having the kingdom ripped away from you. Anyways, that's why Purim is so fundamental and so holy, because while Purim may appear to be a story of political chess, right, and palace intrigue, in truth, it's a spiritual war of the highest stakes playing out and manifesting in the physical domain, in the physical world. And Haman, the Amalekite, he represents the forces of darkness, right, the forces of doubt, the forces of man being nothing more than an animal, and this world being nothing more than the law of the jungle. And Mordechai and Esther, they represent the unreasonable conviction and dedication to Hashem, to God, and to truth. Even if it meant certain death, right? Their very existence testified to the truth that Hashem runs the world. And that's why in Purim, we're told to drink alcohol until we don't know the difference between Baruch Mordechai and Arur Haman, right? Blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman. Because it's our mission as Jews in the world to show that in the realm of ultimate truth, there really is no difference at all, right? Last week, we showed that the numerical equivalent between Vladimir Putin is the same as the War of Gogu Magog. You remember that? Anyways, it says something, that there's uh, the same divine energy invested in each of them. So you know, when there's two concepts that have the same numerical equivalent it shows that there is something inherently parallel about the divine intent for which they were created. So take the Putin one or leave it, whatever it is. But there's a, another more, much more famous and fundamental numerical equivalent that I wanted to share with you. And that is Baruch Mordechai and Arur Haman. Blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman. They have the same numerical equivalent, right? Their, their intent, their divine energy infused within them serves the same the same role, right? They have the, the, the same numerical equivalent because in the world of truth, 
they're both from Hashem, and they're both ultimately good. On the one hand, there's Mordechai, the greatest example of revealed goodness. And on the other hand, there's Haman, the greatest example of concealed or hidden goodness, which is otherwise known as evil, right? I know maybe he was very ambitious trying to share this and, and trying to even articulate it. I hope I'm making sense. Please, Hashem, allow this to be making some sense. But, you know, as, as Jeremy said, that's why the sages of Israel teach that Haman's seal, his ring, right, was able to accomplish what 70 prophets were not. That, that Yeshayahu and Yermiyahu and Yechezkel proclaimed to the nation of Israel, repent, return to Hashem. And, and what were the Jewish people? How did they respond? Well, they were very famous for ignoring them. But then comes along Haman, and with his seal, uh, he concretizes the decree that every last Jew would face state-sanctioned murder, right? Nothing short of a Holocaust. And when Haman does that, then what happens? That's right. The Jewish people don sackcloth and ashes, and they fast, and they cry out to Hashem, and they repent. Haman succeeded in what the prophets of Israel did not succeed. So who's a better prophet, right? So, so was Haman a blessing? I think it's easier to ask that than, God forbid, was Hitler a blessing? Probably because ultimately Haman failed, whereas Hitler, while he ultimately failed, unleashed the most horrible, unimaginable evil on the nation of Israel. But their intent was exactly the same. So I remember getting to an, into an impassioned argument with a dear friend of mine about a verse from the Psalms, from Tehillim, from chapter 37. Was it Naar Hayiti Gamzakanti Veloraiti Tzadik Nezav? I was a youth and I grew old and I never saw a tzadik, right, a righteous person, abandoned. So my friend was saying, How could you even say such a thing after the horrors of Auschwitz? That verse is in our, our blessing after we eat, in, in the benching, in the Berkat Amazon after we eat. And he says he doesn't even say that. There's a number of people that don't say that because they just can't make sense of it. After the horrors of Auschwitz, how could you ever say such a thing that you never saw a righteous person abandoned? And my answer, which is confirmed by countless firsthand stories that I've heard personally, is that if you went up to a tzaddik, a righteous person in Auschwitz, and you asked him whether Hashem has abandoned him, what do you think he would say? I think he'd say, God forbid, God is just as much here in Auschwitz as he has been anywhere. Of course he hasn't abandoned me. And that tzaddik, that tzaddik would continue seeking opportunities with his whole heart to comfort the broken people, which were everywhere, to give hope to the hopeless, to give his last crust of bread to the starving, to strengthen the faith of those who are losing their faith. Because that's who he is, right? And that's what he does. He would recognize that the greatest service of Hashem can only happen. The greatest service can only happen from the place of the greatest darkness. And that the opportunity lay before him to elevate and transform the darkness of Auschwitz into the light of Hashem. And that's the mission of the Jewish people in the world. That's our mission in the world, right? We're not just here to know that everything is from Hashem. And that, 
everything is ultimately good. We are here to transform the darkness into light. We are here to, to elevate those sparks of light from the lowest depths of darkness back to their divine source. And I think that's ultimately what we are, right? We're, we're transformers. And we're here to show the world that there's more than meets the eye. That's right, I went there. We, we are here to dedicate every bit of our hearts and our souls to extracting and elevating the most pristine light from the lowest, most debilitating darkness. And I'll tell you what, having spoken to so many of you, I can tell you that that is what you guys are all about. And, and on Purim, the gates are open. Purim presents us with, with the opportunity to internalize the truth that there is good in everything. Not only, right, not only to know it here in our heads, but to infuse it into our hearts and into our very essence. And that is how we create a dwelling place for Hashem in the world. For that internalized knowledge is reflected in our thoughts and in our speech and our actions. That truth is reflected in our very essence, right? Purim is the ultimate opportunity to elevate Hashem's light from the lowest, the most filtered, the most concealed places. It's our opportunity to, to remove the masks that, that obfuscate and, and hide the deepest truths of this world. And so are you ready for this? My friend Jeremy alluded to this, but I just want to share it with you very clear. As you know, this year is a leap year, right? And so there are two months of Adar, Adar Aleph and Adar Bet. And the question is asked why we celebrate Purim on the second Adar and not the first and the answer that the sages share is because Purim needs to be as close to Pesach as possible. Well, Jeremy touched on this. He started explaining this. Because only after we internalize the truth that Hashem can bring redemption by working through the laws of nature, only then, uh, you know, that, that's what happens on Purim, right? He's, uh, Hashem is bringing redemption through the laws of nature. Only after that are we ready to to experience redemption that, through which Hashem is overruling or overcoming the laws of nature. Not overcoming, overruling them. He doesn't need to overcome them. He creates them all the same. And so that's what happens on Pesach. And so, my friends, we're approaching Purim, the holiday within which lies the greatest potential to fulfill our mission in the world. And, um, and that's what Purim is about. That's what Vayikra is about. And that, that's what this fellowship is about. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean that's by what this fellowship is about? Now, open your hearts. Okay, I saw this, this source, and I just had to share it with you. I know we're, we're, we may go over time, but this is important. So this is a, a famous and fundamental teaching. So the Talmud states, the Jewish people were exiled among the nations only for the sake of the converts who will join them. Now, just before I go on, the sages teach that this is not just referring to converts, but it's referring to the many souls that have been transformed and elevated in the course of our exile by, by contact with the Jewish people, right? The converts, those souls which, which the Talmud is referring to, are the sparks of holiness which were scattered throughout the universe at the time of creation and buried within material existence. This is the actual teaching. I'm reading it to you verbatim. Divine providence has brought the Jew to every point on earth so that by developing his environment and his using its resources to serve God, he would 
extract these sparks of holiness and unite them with their supernal source. There are two ways in which these sparks are redeemed. The first is through the above-mentioned process of galut, right, of exile, in which the Jew follows them to the ends of the earth in order to elevate them. But with the coming of Mashiach, the soul of every creation will gravitate on its own accord to the great light which will emanate from Jerusalem as sparks are drawn towards a flaming torch. That is what I believe we see happening today in this fellowship. And not only here in this fellowship, but this great and growing inexplicable thirst by the righteous of the nations of the world that are just being drawn to Israel and drawn to the Torah. I personally, I really believe that each and every one of you are those divine sparks that were scattered and are being ingathered to their source. You're the most powerful of them because you've come of your own accord, right? And, and if all the pain of the exile was just for each and every one of you, well, then as far as I'm concerned, it was worth it. But maybe that's easy for me to say, right? I haven't gone through the depths of the darkness and the pain, but I do believe that it was worth it. And so, so here we are, right? We're fighting the ultimate battle together, side by side the battle against the forces of darkness, not even against them, but to raise them, to raise the sparks from that darkness to light, right? The, the battle against Amalek. And I'll tell you, this past Shabbat was special. It was called Parshat Zahor. And it's special because, you know, all the women and the children are gathered together. Not only is the Torah portion read during the actual service, but afterwards, because whoever missed the Torah reading for one reason or another, Everyone is gathered together to hear the verses read aloud from the Torah, because it's a special commandment to hear those words. And so before I bless you, I, I thought it would be a good thing for me to read those verses to you. Is that okay? Can I do that? Even if you don't understand them in the Hebrew, just that your soul hearing them, I think, does something powerful. So I'm going to, to read it to you in the, in the Torah cadence. Asher Adonai Elohecha noten lecha nachalal rishta timche et zecher amalek mitachat hashamayim lo tishkach. So I, I think that the translation was there on the on the screen, but that's what this is about. We must not forget. We must not forget what what we're here for, and what our mission is. And in that way, when we go through the greatest darkness, not only in, in the world, in world history, which we may be going into right now, but our personal lives, we can remember. I bless us all that we are able to remember that it's within those places of darkness that we have the greatest opportunity to serve God, to bring pleasure to God by being witnesses from within that darkness that we know it's all a blessing, that it's all from God. May we all be blessed to be able to, to raise those sparks of 
of light. And now, uh, now I want to bless all of you. I love this part. I want to bless you with the Kohanic prayer. And, I rem and remember, afterwards, stay on. For those of you who want to share, to ask questions, anything, who want to interact, to just stay on, you just raise your hand. But uh, now I get to, to bless all of you. And this prayer, please God, will soon be used to bless all of mankind from the top of, of Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha, Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha, Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yisemlecha shalom. May Hashem bless and protect you. May Hashem make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Hashem lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel, live from the Judean frontier.